0: Uh, please stand, out of respect uh, for the speaker, who is God. Let's pay. Let's give our attention uh, to the inerrant Word of God from Numbers chapter five. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually, it is hidden from the eyes of her husband." And she is undetected, though she has defiled herself. And there is no witness against her, since she is not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself. Or, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man is lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you are under the authority of your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray... Though you are under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and some other man than your husband has lain with you, then the priest let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar. And afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then, if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain, and her womb shall swell, her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Lord, uh, some of these passages are so bizarre and desolate and so seem to be so foreign to what we know you are and who we know you to be. Uh, And yet, Lord, we know and we believe that that the Bible and all that's in it has been preserved by the Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us into righteousness but also to teach us the great story of redemption. our, Our Lord Jesus said that all Scripture from Moses and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, all the stories in the Old Testament are talking about him. And so, Lord, we pray you would help us to see how this picture shows us not just uh, the desolation of our own sin uh, and your holiness and, uh, and the wrath of your judgment, but even more so, we pray it would show us against that dark and black background the beauty and light of Jesus and the fullness of what he has accomplished for us. Uh, so that, Lord, we, wouldn't, uh, we, would, we would live into that. We'd be so grateful for it. Uh, we would be less tempted to run back to the old ways of death uh, and that we would, be, we would be drawn more towards your beauty, your light, and, and, and by Your power of your Spirit, grow us into the likeness of Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that you would show us those things. Uh, you would illuminate our minds by the power of your Spirit as we go through this text, Lord. So we pray that you would uh, give us minds to understand, Lord, and hearts to obey your perfect word, and through it, we trust that you will beautify us, your afflicted ones, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage has a lot of personal weight for me now. It hasn't always been that way. I used to I knew about this passage, but in the past, I never gave it a whole lot of thought, you know, I really just kind of filed it under the, you know, weird stuff of the Old Testament that doesn't have any real impact on my life category, uh, and kind of moved on uh, with my day until uh, until a very dear friend of mine brought it to my attention. She was struggling hard with her faith, struggling hard with what she was seeing in the Old Testament. Uh, and she looked at this passage, read this passage, and she said, you know, she was basically said to me, what she saw in this passage was just the moral equivalent uh, to a misogynistic anti-woman witch hunt, much like the Salem witch trials. Uh, just a bizarre trial by ordeal uh, where she imagined just countless terrified young women being brought uh, before these powerful men to undergo this awful ordeal and unfairly judged. And, and she was like, I just, can't, I just can't get down with that. So much so, you know, I'm not even tripping on the weird magic and the mumbo-jumbo and the potion-making and, you know high priest, Professor Snape, like mixing up the serum of death. I'm not even tripping on that. What I'm tripping on is that this, is this God sanctioned this? Because if he did, if this was really sanctioned by God, I, not, that I, not only that I could, I would never, I would never worship a God like that even if I knew it was true. Because it would, it just, it just shows that he's wicked. And maybe that's, maybe you feel that way, man. Maybe you just heard me read this story and you're like, "Thank you, thank you, Pastor Rob, for giving me reason number eight hundred and forty-seven why the Bible is bat crazy, and I need to stay as far away from it as I possibly can." Thank you very much. Uh, maybe you're a Christian and you're like, and you're like, "Really, Rob?" <laughs> Can we just skip this stuff, man? Do you really, is it like just, do you feel it's like your mission to just alienate everyone who comes to church this week? (laughs) Everyone who, you know, listens to, watches this on, on the live stream. Are you trying to alienate everybody? Can't we just stick to the passages about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the stuff that's really important, man? And my answer to that is... Yes, (laughs) yes, we're going to stick with the stories about Jesus and the grace of God, and that's really the whole point of this series. Uh, The whole point of this series is is that to show that even in these bizarre and desolate passages of Scripture, when we see them in the right context, in the right way, uh, man, we see the love of God. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just literally erupts from them like a fountain, like last week, like the week before. Uh, And so that's my hope today. We are going to look at this, uh, and we're also, when it's going to take, it gives us an opportunity uh, to look into how to read your Bible. Because... On the one hand, this is a practical story. It's a historical account of the jurisprudence of ancient Near Eastern Israel. This is how they did court. This is what they did in real life. There's a practical element to it. Uh, The trial of an Israelite woman suspected of adultery. But there's another layer to it. God being the creative uh, artist of, of all uh, uses and uses all these stories in the, t- in the Old Testament. Jesus says himself to teach us about him. And that's what we're going to be looking for. When we do that, a much bigger picture emerges when we tie this little story into the big story of redemption. Uh, and when we do that, we see the love and the grace of God. Uh, so that's going to be our outline. First, we're going to look at kind of the practical of this, the historical reality of it, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, we're going we're to unpack what is it that's really going on here, so we can get that out of the way, and then what we're really going to get into it is we're going to look at this passage, and it's going to show us a, uh, uh, a, an unescapable spiritual axiom, <laughs> An axiom is a, a truth that you cannot avoid, and that is this, that our sin will always find us out, but Jesus has overcome our sin. Super simple. So let's go, let's go with that. Let's first, let's look at the story, the practical, the trial of an unfaithful woman. Um, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, and my friend, uh, being a, a super-educated person, knew this, that the ancient world, at least up till 1728, is like uh, the last like really despicable case of this that we, that we have on record, at least up till... 1700s, the the trial by ordeal was commonplace, meaning uh, that if there was hidden sin or hidden guilt, and there were no witnesses and no one knew what was true and what was untrue, the belief was that you would take this person and put them in some horrendously difficult or dangerous situation, and if they were if they were innocent, then you would leave it up to God, the divine judge, to save them from it, and if they were guilty. Uh, God would allow them to die, right? uh, Ingest poison. If you're innocent, poison will have no effect on you. If you're guilty, the poison will kill you. (laughs) Uh, Vats of boiling oil. If you're innocent, you'll be able to reach your hand down and grab a stone from the bottom of the vat of boiling oil. If you're guilty, it'll sear the arm off down to the bone. Right? You see how this is lining up, right? These trials by ordeal were not friendly things. Um, the most famous one is the water trial. Of Salem witch hunts, we're all familiar with this, where their belief was that if you were a witch, you had uh, denounced your baptism. And if you denounced your baptism, the water, water would reject you as a pure element. And so therefore, easy, if, we, if you want to find out if someone's a witch throw them in the water. If they sink, they're innocent. If they float, they're a witch. (laughs) I mean, man, I mean, looking back at it, you just can't make this stuff up, right? But that happened. Those are real things that happened to real people. So my friend wasn't totally off base, but is that what's happening here? Let's look. What is going on here? Let me just run through it again real quick. the main parts of it. There are some subpoints I'm not going to get into, uh, but um, the main points of it, for our purposes, are this: there, uh, there's a husband who suspects that his wife has been unfaithful. He's just overcome with jealousy. Maybe you know, maybe he's like you know, like seen some errant text messages or something like that. Um, he's gotten something that's made him feel like his wife has been unfaithful, and when that happens. The law commanded uh, that rather than taking matters into his own hands, he was to bring his wife to the temple or to the tabernacle. And the priest would then take the woman and place her before the Lord. Scary enough, right, for a regular Israelite woman to go into the tabernacle, into the court or into the, uh, the holy uh, and to be before the Lord God And then the priest would take and make this mixture, right? It it would take water and take some dirt from the floor of the tabernacle. And then he would write the curses out on probably a leather uh, piece of vellum. And then uh, with charcoal ink. And then he would like pour water and wash the charcoal ink off the page and into the cup. Uh, No magic, no potions, nothing weird. It's just water from the laver. Uh, it's dirt from the floor of the tabernacle and it's charcoal ink. It's not magic. It's not potion. It's all symbolism. It's stuff that would have been understood by the Israelites in their culture. The water symbolizing the Holy Spirit and the, the dust from the floor of the tabernacle of God's presence signifying God's holiness and God's presence. And the words of the curse in the water signifying ingesting the, the, God's curse into your body. Uh, and so the cup is described as the bitter cup and not because of the taste it's described as the bitter cup because of the potential outcome she's made to say the amen uh, to the curse to the oath and then she's made to drink the bitter cup of god's curse and there's two possible outcomes the first uh, the one that I think is emphasized in the text is that first, if she's innocent, she'll be vindicated. Nothing happens. She's, indi- she's vindicated by God, uh, and, she's, and, she, and she, she, uh, she gets to go home. Uh, and her husband is um, rebuked by the priest. And, but if she's truly guilty... The water doesn't cause a miscarriage or it's not its not an abortion. It, it, it's euphemistic language that means that she becomes barren. It says, you know, it, it says if she's vindicated, she will conceive children. At the end, we can, you know, we know from that and from the euphemistic language that it means she would be barren, which is not a small thing. In ancient Israel, the ability to have children for women in ancient cultures was huge. To be able to contribute to your People to your society, the more babies that were born, the more people there were, the more crops could be harvested, uh, the more provision you had, the greater your military could be, the more protection you had from raiding bands of vicious foreign enemies. Uh, And so, if you weren't able as a woman to contribute to that, and even just all of you know the beauty and blessing that comes from a woman's special ability to create and, and bring forth life was a huge curse it wasn't a small thing so look that's what's going on now let's I mean to get some clarity on this let's like compare it against the popular some other popular alternatives of the time Uh, let's compare it to the trial by ordeal where uh, you know she's taken and thrown into the water with a rock Uh, if she sinks she's innocent if she floats she's guilty compared to that uh, compared to that, uh, this is f- far more just uh, because there's real potential emphasized of vindication for the woman. Again, there's no poison, there's no treacherous river. She's not thrown into a terrible, dangerous situation. It's it requires God to act. Uh, the water and that's all that. It's just a prop. It's just symbolism, but it requires God to act and bring the curse if she is guilty. So if you're an atheist and you're reading this, you know, this should be like the best news in the world, because if there's no God, there's no punishment, there's no curse, 10 out of 10 women would walk and be vindicated from this. Uh, the second comparison is to allowing the jealous husband to be the judge, which is unfortunately still an all too popular alternative or the husband's family. Instead, what this did was it required people to come to the Lord, to to the priest and stand before the Lord, and it was an act. It was literally an act of faith. It was an act of submission to God. the, The woman and her husband came before God, and God, who sees all and knows all, is the judge. And he judges perfectly, and he judges fairly. Uh, So I'm arguing that there is, relative for the time, there is a ton of justice and a ton of protection afforded women uh, compared to other cultural expressions of justice of the day. And um, honestly, man, I will take, uh, I would take this, I would take that over risking corrupt witnesses and biased juries and perjury all day, especially if I was a woman or a minority in our current jurisprudence system. I would take God, the judge, all day if I was innocent. If I was not innocent, that's a whole different story. Maybe you're not convinced, maybe you're thinking, man, uh, I don't know man, I think this is um, still some hocus pocus and I am so glad and so, uh, so grateful that we live in an enlightened age where nothing like this would ever happen to me. Maybe you're thinking that. Well, let's take it, let's take it now to the next level and let's look at, uh, let's look at what God is trying to teach us here. Is this, is this really all, do you think this is really all God is trying to teach in this passage? just like the strange jurisprudence of ancient Near Eastern Israel. So we can like look at it and go, wow, that's amazing. There was some measure of justice in God's people compared to surrounding cultures, and that's it, on with our day. You think that's all, is that really the only reason God would put this story in this text? Or is there something more going on? Let's look at now the bigger story, the theological implications of this, if you will. Uh, the big story of redemption and how this little passage fits into it. And what it teaches us is that our sin will always find us out. We are, uh, as 21st century Americans, we have all sorts of beliefs that we just kind of assume from the culture that, that we don't even realize that we have. And one of the big ones is we are enculturated to believe that the best, maybe the only way to convey truth is through logical propositional truth statements. The sky is blue. Uh, You know, energy equals mass times speed of light squared. Uh, A person is saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. Straight up like statements of propositional truth. That's why systematic theology is so popular with us, right? It's like this, uh, it's, like, it's like a rational index of spiritual truth. We want to know, you know about God, we can look up in the index, God, attributes of God, and we can just go through our little propositional truth statement list and be like, ah, I am, uh, th- we, you know, we, we as Presbyterians, we account that as uh, spiritual maturity, Just read another book, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> However, and so what does that do? That filters how we read the Bible. That belief, that underlying belief is a filter with how we look at the Bible. We see it as this historical story of ancient Near Eastern jurisprudence, and we say that's interesting, uh, interesting cultural artifact, doesn't have much to do with my life today, let's move on. But God is so much more creative and so much more powerful than that. Uh, How did Jesus teach truth? Did Jesus sit down and gather all the people around him and say "Uh, children, what is your only hope in life and death? (laughs) My only hope is that I in life and death belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his nature. He didn't do that. He didn't like lay out propositional truth statements of God or of the spirituality. What did he do? He taught him parables, which is using things from nature and our familiarity with them uh, as a prop to illuminate a greater spiritual truth. Right? What did he say? He sat down, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer. Uh, who goes out to sow his seed, right? Everybody at that time knew what a farmer was, knew what sowing seed was. They knew about crows coming and eating seed. They knew about good soil and bad soil. And so he used all these elements from the natural world as props, as pictures, as illustrations of greater spiritual realities. Um, And the stories in the Old Testament are in many ways the same. They are like parables, using these natural things that we can see and our familiarity with them. We all know about trials. We all know about um, unfaithfulness. We all know about these things. He uses these natural elements of the created world to give us a foothold, a mental foothold and to illuminate to us the spiritual reality that we cannot see. He does it all through the Old Testament. So what is it? Uh, what is God trying to teach us? When we get figured out, we can start to figure it out by looking at what the props are. The prop is the woman herself, the unfaithful woman, uh, and the charge of, of adultery against her. And we take those we take those uh, those physical elements, we, those things from the real world, and we plug them into how does you know how does God use uh, how does God use those things in the grand narrative of Scripture? What is what is the most common way for God to describe Israel in their sin? Israel who's run after false gods. Israel is described as what? The unfaithful bride of God, right? God married Israel. She was supposed to be, you know, hit the bride of God, uh, and, and she was supposed to worship God, but instead, what did she do? She ran off and worshiped other gods. She sinned. She abandoned God, uh, and God takes that analogy and says that, that apostasy or, or sinning against God and leaving God for other things and worshiping other things besides God is, is like spiritual... Adultery, And so we have those two concepts of Israel, the unfaithful bride, and adultery as a picture of spiritual adultery and apostasy. Uh, And then we can go and start plugging that in and start by just, we could do this all day, uh, plugging these things in and pulling these stories out. But I'm just going to, we don't have time. I'm going to only like, you know, pick a couple of good ones. This is from Ezekiel 23. This is God speaking to Judah, right, the southern kingdom after her sister Israel had already apostatized and been carried off into captivity into, ba- into, ba- into Assyria. Uh, this is what he says to Judah. He says, your, your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister Israel. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand, says the Lord God. You shall drink your sister's cup. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out. Isaiah says, O Jerusalem, this is God's people we're talking about. O Jerusalem, you who have drunk From the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk the dregs to the bowl of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Man, did you catch that? He went right from the imagery of unfaithful Israel, the unfaithful bride of God, guilty of spiritual adultery, to the cup of the Lord's wrath being placed in her hand. Man, like I I said, we could do this all day. We could do this all day, pulling out passages about Israel, the unfaithful bride. Whole books of the Bible, Hosea. God has a prophet, Mary, a prostitute, uh, and she serves as like a picture of Israel. And God says, yeah, this this is what our relationship is like. We could go on and on and on. Um, well, let me give you just one more, and let me move from the realm of, 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 of poetic picture, and let's take the same concept and bring it back into propositional truth statement. That's because that's, that's what we like, right? New Testament epistles, this is Paul explaining what this all means, and he says in Romans 2, uh, 16, Brian read it earlier, the single most terrifying verse in all the Bible, he says, that God will bring everything to judgment on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets of men. That is the most terrifying verse in the Bible, man. Because we all, listen, we, I know you, I know me, I know you. <laughs> and we got it, you know, we got it together, right? We've got our carefully cultivated public image. Um, uh, but everybody's got secrets. Everybody, I don't care who you are, you have a secret that if we took that, see, if we had the technology To bring you up on stage and play that secret on the Jumbotrons would be terrified. Terrified. And that is a picture of the final judgment, of the last day. All the clever arguments wash away, all the justifications wash away, Uh, and we are standing in front of God. And all of our secrets are about to be exposed. That is the reality. So let's go back to the story. Unfaithful woman from Israel. She's standing in the tabernacle in front of the Holy of Holies. The edges of the wings of the seraphim are sticking out. Cloud of the presence of God, maybe visible. Uh, She's walked in, trembling in the presence of God. She's holding the cup. She's going to have to drink it. All the secrets are going to be exposed, except the camera pulls out and swings around, and you see the face, and it's not the woman. It's you in the hot seat. And that's the, the terrifying truth that this passage is bringing out. Uh... It's not, the case is not that this, we live in an enlightened age where nothing like this will ever happen to you. This is teaching a spiritual principle, a spiritual reality that will happen to you. One day, like it or not, like it or not, no matter what, we will all be standing in the presence of God, holding the cup of wrath in our hand. We have to drink it. There's no way around it. All our secrets are about to pour out. And the question it calls us to answer is, how are you going to (laughs) do? How are you going to do? When those secrets come piling out. Now look, that is a terrifying thought, okay? God does not embed these things in his word just to terrify us, or just to like make us super uncomfortable. The shock value in it, there truly is shock value in it because the dullness of our senses, the, 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 the corruption of our heart is always justifying, downplaying, minimizing our sin. And so God, and, and, and when we, you know when we do that, there's no way to justify, to downplay, and to minimize the real spiritual condition of our hearts without also downplaying, minimizing the role of Jesus or the beauty of Jesus or the, the, what he has accomplished. Jerry, I love this quote. Jerry Andrews, the pastor of First Pres, he says, if all I need is a little help, that means Jesus is a little helper. (laughs) No one would want to say that. And so why does God present these stark, terrifying passages to us? Uh, It's so that we can understand our real spiritual condition, so we can understand what Jesus has actually done for us. And fortunately, this is not the end of the story of the cup there's a whole nother, the, the, the imagery of the cup of the wrath of God continues into the New Testament. And that's the last part of what we're gonna talk about today, that Jesus has overcome our sin. Uh, Jesus has overcome our sin. You know, as, as a preacher, when you're putting sermons together, you're always trying to find like, the illustration that's going to, like, illustrate, like, the reality of the point, you know? Because the truth is, nobody remembers the theology of a sermon. As much as as we might want to, like, geek out on all these, like, little theological points, nobody remembers anything about the theology of a sermon. But what people remember, what I remember, are the illustration. I remember the stories. I remember the stories. I can remember sermons from... 10, 12, 15 years ago, I have no idea what passage it was, no idea what the theology was, but I remember a particular story that the preacher taught, told uh, and, the, and the spiritual truth that he was trying to uncover with it, right? That's the kind of stuff that sticks with you. And so as a preacher, you're always looking for these illustrations to like bring out this point. But the problem is when we talk about this, when we talk about Jesus overcoming our sin, there's just, there's just, just I, I finally just gave up. There's just nothing. There's no story. There's no movie character. There's no play. There's no, there's really nothing that even comes close to depicting the grandeur and the, 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 the beauty and the power of what Christ has accomplished for us. Every other story, really, Huh, it's a hack on this main story. It's on, every other story is in some way kind of a hack on the story of Jesus rescuing us from death. The good king who comes and dies and rescues his people. Uh, and we all live happily ever after. Every story in one way or another borrows from this big story. And so we have to just go with the elements that God has given us. <laughs> We have to go with the illustrations that God has embedded in in his word, the things that God has given us to help us understand the bigness of what all this is. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we have things like that that we do so often, they lose their power. Every week, we do the Lord's Supper And every week I hold up the cup and I say the cup of blessing which we bless. And we probably never, I never really, don't we ever stop and think, well, why is this a cup of blessing? What makes this a cup of blessing for us? And the answer is because Jesus took the cup of wrath for us, the cup of wrath in our hands that we were going to have to drink. Jesus took that cup and he drank it for us to the dregs. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What cup is he talking about? It's some random cup. He's talking about the cup that the scriptures have been talking about for millennia. The cup of bitterness, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's judgment that he must pour out on our sin. Jesus says he's praying. He knows the pain he's about to suffer by taking the cup of wrath and having all the sin of the world poured out upon him. He prays to God, hey man, is there some other way we can do this? And God says, no. It's not possible. There's only two options you drink the cup or they drink the cup. That's it. There's no middle ground. And so he did. He took the curse of God's wrath upon himself. Our gospel reading. He was made a curse for us. Anyone who hanged on, anyone who's hanged on a tree is a curse. It's God's visible symbol that all of the curse of the wrath, the foaming wine of wrath from the cup of the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus, and the curse comes upon him. Uh so that the curse would never come upon us. Now, we could go like in a million directions from that point. What does that mean? How big is that? Like, if if that's true, if God poured out all of our judgment onto Jesus, poured out all of his wrath onto Jesus, if Jesus took that cup from us and drank it to the dregs so there's nothing left, There's no cup left in your hand. And when we go and stand before God at the judgment, uh, it won't be terror. It won't be a cup of terror in our hands. It will be Jesus saying, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. You know, when you uh, flush it out like this, it it gets harder to understand why anyone would reject this. No, I'll take the cup. <laughs> Can you, I mean, when you say it like that, it sounds insane. I'll take the cup. I'll take my chances. Man, but people do that every day. Why? Because, man, it's possible to read these old stories through our 21st century filters, through our preconceived ideas, uh, through our, our biases about what we believe about the Bible and, and God and to read all those things in it and come out thinking that God is cruel uh, and evil and unworthy of our worship. But you don't have to read it that way. You can maintain intellectual uh, integrity <laughs> And read it the way it was meant to be read, as an illustrative story of the dire peril that our souls are in outside of Jesus. What would be our reality had Jesus not come to do what he did? uh, So that we could see that God, what God did, compelled by his love for us, he became a man and took the curse that must be paid upon himself so that we would never, ever have to take that curse upon ourselves. and if that's true, it paints a picture of a very different God who is totally worthy of our worship. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the hard, uh, the beautiful, um, all of it, Lord. Even the weird and desolate portions like this, Lord, there's a lot. There's a lot that we don't understand. We're separated from the ancient Near East by thousands of years, and there are things about their culture that we don't understand, and um, some of this we still have questions about. However. Uh, you have made the the most important things abundantly plain. You've showed us how, and by showing us how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament, by showing us how the apostles and the writers of the New Testament interpreted the Old Testament, you've shown us the right way to approach it. Uh, and when we do that, when we interpret it the way you've taught us through Jesus and the apostles. We see how beautiful you are. We see the, the devastation of sin, the oppression of it. Uh, but all that is only the backdrop to show us the beauty of what Christ has accomplished for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us cling to Jesus. We pray you would help us to see sin for what it truly is, poison and death and disease uh, and see the life uh, that you are molding us into you through the spirit uh, and help us to run forward to be like Jesus so that we might be lights in the world, Lord. And we thank you for your spirit who has illuminated our minds to all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.